I love that song. Um, so I was just thinking about the, the 100 billion galaxies thing. So I guess this is where we're starting now. Uh, you know when you look up at the stars in the city and you can still see them, but it's not quite the same? And then you get out into the country and it's pitch black. And all of a sudden it's like the most amazing thing you've ever seen. The stars didn't change, right? What, what changed? The, the backdrop, the, the darkness that the stars were up against. Tonight we're going to talk about the darkness of our hearts. And, and this, is, this is my hope for you guys. This is what I've been praying all week. That as we look at how messed up our hearts are, how messed up we all are, that for you, the grace of Jesus Christ would shine brighter against the darkness of your heart. And, and I think that's the point, right? That, that he is so beautiful and he's so bright and his grace is so sufficient in comparison to our weakness and so when we look at our weakness, it's not to just stare at it and stay there, but it's, it's, it's to get a backdrop upon which his grace can shine. And so that's, that's where we want to go tonight. And, and I mean, we, yeah, I, I mean, you can kind of tell, like, if you've, you've read Romans 1 and 2 before, like, just weren't, like, the next couple weeks this all coming, it's, it's going to get a little real, okay? Like, it, it, you, you read Romans 1, and it's like, shots fired, Paul. Like, this is... This is getting real, but I, I think it's going to be good, all right? So, like, just expect it. Next couple weeks, it's going to get real, but it's the backdrop upon which his grace kind of stands out. So Romans 1.18, I want to start with this, and this is essentially the, the main idea for tonight. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So, so that's essentially what we're talking about tonight, is, is why has the wrath of God been revealed and what do we do about it? And, and here's the thing, I think it's easy to, to misunderstand the wrath of God. Okay, clearly that's not like a happy-go-lucky, lovey-dovey thing. But I do think we, we misunderstand it and we're a little more afraid of it than we need to be. Ah, I don't think that's exactly what I want to say. It is scary. But I think we misunderstand it because we put human terms on the wrath of God when actually His wrath flows out of His goodness. His wrath is a result of His goodness. So, so here's what I mean by that. I told you guys about my grandpa a couple, couple weeks ago. My gramps is a stinking champion and I decided that I was going to talk about him again. So here we are talking about Gramps. So I have never seen my grandpa speak poorly of another human being, and I have never seen him angry except for this one time. And this one time was when my sister Lindsay and I were playing with G.I. Joes at his house, and Lindsay took my G.I. Joe. And you just don't take a man's G.I. Joe. You also don't do what I did next, but I, I reacted, and the way I reacted is I hit her. Shouldn't have done it. I was little, okay? It wasn't in the face. It was like a wimpy, like, little kid hit on the arm. Like, she was fine. But I looked up at my grandpa and in that moment wanted to cuss for the first time in my life. It was like, oh, crap. And he, like, looked at me, and he, like, walked slowly over to me, and he literally... <laughs> He just picked me up 
and he just held me in front of his face and he said, you will never touch your sister or any other woman like that again, you hear me? And I was like, yep, I, I hear you, Grandpa. And he goes, yes, sir. You say yes, sir, when I talk to you. And I'm like, yes, sir. And he put me down and then he just walked away. And I never did it again, turns out. Okay, are any of you mad at my grandpa for how he responded? You better not be. I will fight you. My gramps is a champ. I told you this. No, you're not mad at him. Why? That's a stinking baller response to what happened. That's awesome. Why is it awesome? Because his anger was flowing out of his love for my sister. And you know what? It was flowing out of his love for me. He saved me from being a bonehead. (laughs) And that's how God looks at us is he will protect his kids. And our sin affects his kids. And he will protect you from your own sin. And that's why his wrath has been revealed. So why has his wrath been revealed specifically? Verse 19. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, listen to this, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Did you catch that? Okay, so he said that the attributes of God, that God has kind of written himself into creation, that he's made himself obvious to us, which means that there's no such thing as a person that is born not believing in God. That we as people have the the most clear evidence that we need in this beautiful creation that we call home, that a loving and beautiful God exists. So why do we all not know about him? Because we suppress the truth. We willingly push it down because we don't want to hear it. That's part of the human nature and it's part of the reason why his wrath has been revealed. Let's keep going. Verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. All right, all that was kind of making sense. And then he starts talking about creeping things. Okay, what's going on here? So this is called idolatry. And what they would do is they would take a block of wood and then they would carve like a little image out of a bird, and then they would worship it, which is idiotic. Like, dude, you just made that. Like, that's clearly not God, right? Idolatry is stupid. But, and and, and so, okay, and so hopefully none of you are like currently struggling with that. Like, hopefully none of you have little shrines in your dorm room of little trinkets that you're worshiping. Like, I think we're all good there, right? But what's the heart behind this. All right, so here's the definition of idolatry that he gives in a little bit, verse 25. This is what idolatry is. It's because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and they worshiped and they served the creature rather than the creator who is forever blessed. Amen. Idolatry is exchanging the creator for his creation. Idolatry is deformed worship. So you were designed to worship That's actually good news. There's a purpose for your life. You have meaning and significance. You were made in the image of your creator God to know him, to worship him, to enjoy him. That's the purpose of your life. 
And here's the thing, you can't stop worshiping because he built that into you. It's what you were made to do. It's the default mode of the human heart. So think of this as like your heart has a little throne room in it. And there's something that's going to sit on the throne room of your heart. And it's going to consume your, your affections and your passions and your hopes and your dreams, your imagination. Whatever's on the throne room of your heart will play itself out in your life. And here's what idolatry is. is exchanging the God of the universe for something in his creation. Turning a good thing into a God thing. Something that you should enjoy into an ultimate thing. This is Tim Keller's definition of an idol. An idol is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. A counterfeit God is anything so, this is so good, is anything so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. So I think that last sentence is pretty telling. When you find your nightmare, you'll find your idol. Like, what would turn your life into a nightmare if you lost it? What's the thing that you can't afford to lose? What are you terrified of losing? And when that idol is on the throne of your heart, it's going to demand a sacrifice from you. And, and some of you know that all too well because you grew up in, in a family that sacrificed you on the altar of their career. Or you grew up in a family that sacrificed your freedom and your joy for the idol of their perfect image as a family to conform you into the image that they wanted to portray to the world. So you know idolatry well, but how about you? What is it for you? Success? Here's where you can find the idolatry of success. You walk into any gym in America. There's always that guy. There's various versions of that guy. One of them is the guy that wears all the sweatbands. He's got like one on his head, like five on his arms. He's got long socks, and he's just playing too hard. It's just too intense. Or there's that guy that after every shot it, it, that he misses, like, I can't believe me. He's like yelling at himself, like, what the heck, man? Get it together. What's going on? His identity's at stake. It's not just about basketball. His identity's at stake. All right, how about school? You guys were like, walking zombies on finals week. Like, I, I, am, I am as glad that finals week is over <laughs> as you guys are because you were kind of getting a little mean. I'd ask you how your life is, and you just go on this, like, long diatribe about how terrible school is. I'm like, all right, good to talk to you too, guys. What's going on? You're putting your existence in a letter that someone puts on a page. Like, like three little lines. That was an A. I don't know if you could tell that. It kind of looked like the cross thing. I realize that. Whatever that thing is that people do. It's an A. Three little lines. An A begins to define your existence. And, and here's what you, you'll do. You, you become almost obsessive about it. And you'll sacrifice your friends, your health, your sleep, your sanity. You'll sacrifice time with Christians and with other people for that letter that says that you're worth something. You'll sacrifice everything in your life for your God of success in academics. Control. You're obsessive about the future. Right? So you do that whole God's will thing. 
where you try, and, you try and figure out God's will and you freak out and it's like, who does he want me to marry? Where does he want me to live? What should I do? And you're praying all the time and you're freaking out and you're going back and forth. What's going on in your heart? You want to sit on the throne room of the universe and you want to control your life and everyone else's like a puppet. You want to be in control because you don't trust the one who is. And so you'll sacrifice your, your peace so that you can have control. Or how about a different type of control? Maybe you're super defensive. You don't really let anyone into your life because you've been hurt before, and so you're the gatekeeper for who gets to be in your life. And you let people in to a degree, but only to a certain degree. And you've been hurt before. And so you're going to control whether someone hurts you or not again, and you're robbing yourself of real intimacy, real relationships, and you're robbing them of knowing you. You'll sacrifice relationships with people to your God of control so that you don't have to be afraid because you got this covered. Here's the deal. Idolatry is like an addiction. It gives you just enough of a high, enough, enough of what you're looking for to keep you coming back. And we're, we're in this delusion about how bad it's really gotten, right? Addicts don't ever know that they're addicts. They think they've got it under control, that they can get out, and they'll constantly tell you that it's not really that bad. That's what idolatry is like. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do another analogy about a nuclear bomb, which I also did another one <laughs> the week before. I never thought I would do any analogies about a nuclear bomb, Guess I got nukes on the brain. No, okay, I'm, I'm coming back. I'm not going to talk about North Korea. We're back. Everything's fine, okay? So I have completely lost my track. What are we talking? Okay, okay, nuclear bomb. Okay, so this is what happened. I was listening to a podcast. Podcasts are great, guys. Podcasts aren't lame anymore. They're cool now. Listen to podcasts. Okay, so I was listening to this podcast, and it was about these people that work on nuclear bombs. So these dudes' jobs is to hang from the, like, the rafters of this nuclear silo into like fix a nuclear bomb. So they're like hanging there fixing this nuke and then a dude drops a wrench. Don't drop the wrench when you're working on a nuke. So he like watches it fall and it hits the fuel tank that like sends the nuke like up into the air and then like falls down into the nuke and then the fuel tank starts spraying gas everywhere. And so now red lights are going off and everything's like starting to, to go crazy. And so they come down and they go back into the control room and people are like sprinting back and forth and there's red lights and buzzers and alarms going off. And they walk in and they're like, guys, what's going on out there? And this is what these two jokesters did. They go, oh, we don't know. They just pretended like they didn't know what was going on. And so for 20 minutes, there was a nuke on top of like a smaller bomb that was about to blow up and these guys weren't saying what was wrong. And so they, they like call the Pentagon and they evacuate this nuclear bunker and they go outside and then some, somebody decides actually they got to go back in. So now they're trying to break back into their nuclear bunker. And as they're trying to break back in, it blows up. You guys, you guys are like, the nuke blow up? No, you guys would have heard if a nuke blew up in the United States. Come on. But the fuel tanks did blow up. So like, concrete chunks the size of cars are like flying everywhere. And when the guys snap out of it, they realize that this nuke is like 200 yards away. All because one dude dropped a little wrench. 
into it and everything went wrong. That's kind of a picture of your life. You even commit, you even commit one sin, you have one form of idolatry, and everything just turns into a dumpster fire. That's one of my expressions. I want to encourage it to you. Dumpster fire just means everything's a train wreck. Okay, so you, one thing goes wrong, and it all starts to, to go wrong. And here's the deal. You know what? Why did those guys not say anything about what was going on? Because they had an idol. It was an idol of their self-image, right? And they were afraid in that moment to take the blame for something that they had done wrong, and they were willing to sacrifice literally their own lives and everyone else's lives around them to keep worshiping their idol, to protect their image. And this is what I'm saying is the, the Christian life is where you're looking at your own life and you're seeing these alarms going off. You see the selfishness. You see the anger. You see the temptation towards sexual sin. <coughs> I started choking there. You see the temptation towards sexual sin. You, you're seeing the alarms going off. But your idol is going to try and convince you to self-preserve, to not tell anyone, to pretend like everything's fine. You're like an addict saying that you don't have an addiction. And here's what God does with people like that. People that have engaged in false worship. What's the punishment for it? Verse 24. Therefore, God gave them up in their lusts of their hearts to impurity. Okay. What's the punishment that fits the crime of abandoning the one who made us? He gives us exactly what we want. That's how messed up your desires are. Is the punishment for your sin is God giving you your sin. Letting you have exactly what you want and letting you find out how much it will never satisfy you. He turns you over to your desires. And in the next section, he's going to give a list of things that he's given us over to. The desires that have turned into sins in our lives. And, and the first one that he's going to give us is homosexuality. All right. Room just got a little real. Yes, we're going to talk about this. And it's a hard topic, guys, to talk about publicly. And can I just ask you for the benefit of the doubt? Like, like, if there's something that frustrates you, if there's something that you don't understand, instead of taking off, would you just come talk to me afterwards or talk to your connection group leader? Like, can we just have a discussion? It, it's hard to communicate something so complex to a room full of people in a short amount of time. I'm not going to be able to do it justice, so can you just give me the benefit of the doubt? That'd be awesome. And, and, and here's part of the reason why this is hard to talk about. It's largely because Christians or people who claim to be Christians have behaved ridiculously when it comes to interacting with people with same-sex attraction. If I had to label this section in my notes, it would, it would actually be homosexuality and homophobia. And, and I want you to hear me on this. Homophobia, the disrespect or fear of or discrimination towards people of same-sex attraction is anti-Christian. It's anti-Christian. And, and it's just sad, and honestly, I hate that, that I, as a Christian, have been labeled as that because of the way that 
Christians have handled this topic. And look, if that's you, if you're the one that has disrespected and stereotyped people of the same sex, you need to turn away from your ignorance. And you need to recognize that you're equally in sin as the person that you're trying to call out. Like, Salt Company will not be a place where people will be looked down on. It, it just won't be. This is a place where people are going to be treated like image bearers with respect. And if you're here and you've experienced like discrimination or hate or you've been mocked, you've been left out for same-sex attraction, I'm sorry. Like for real. You should not have had to walk through that. I'm sorry for those things that have been claimed in the name of Christ. You are loved and welcomed here, okay? But here's the thing. We actually think that part of what it means to love each other is to have hard conversations, to talk not just about what we feel, but to talk about what's true, about what God says is the best life for human flourishing. And so what does the Bible say about homosexual actions? Okay, now hear me on that. I'm not talking orientation right now. That's a different conversation that we can have another time. I'm talking actions. Verse 26 and 27. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Here's what God says about homosexual behavior. And again, behavior I'm not talking about orientation yet. God says that homosexual behavior is contrary to the way that he designed you as your good creator who wants what's best for you and that therefore it's a sin. Okay, now let me unpack that. Why is it a sin? Look back. What did they do? What did they do? They exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. Okay, the Bible says that homosexual behavior is contrary to nature. But here's the deal. This gets cloudy and confusing and weird because Christians, I think, somewhat with bad motivations, some with good motivations and just not fully understanding this text, including me in the past, have, have kind of misunderstood what this means. And so we've started saying things like, there's no such thing as homosexual orientation or that, that homosexuality can't be biological in any way and that it's, that it's just a choice. Let me say this. Homosexual orientation does exist. I think it does actually have a biological component. And I don't think very many people just kind of wake up and say, hey, I think I'm going to be oriented this way now. I don't think that's like a thing people just wake up and do. None of that stuff is actually what this text is talking about. So what is it saying? Well, it's simply affirming the rest of the, what the rest of the chapter is about, that there's a God who created us and he designed us for his glory and our good, which are the same things, by the way. When God wants his glory, it's the same thing as him wanting your good. There's a God that designed us for his glory and our good, but sin has blinded us from his goodness. And he's saying that, he designed you in a certain way for your flourishing. And homosexual sex is contrary to that design. And you might be saying, dude, you don't get it. It feels supernatural. 
Not supernatural. It feels natural to me. Sorry about that. It feels natural to me. It feels like who I am. Okay, and, and here's what I want to say is I, I get what you're saying there, actually. But I just want you to see that there's a different definition in your definition of natural and what the Bible is talking about when it says natural. Okay, so I have a natural predisposition towards anger. I was the, like, pick up your ball and go home kid. Like, somebody ticked me off on the playground. I'm just taking my ball. I'm getting out of there. I'm mad. I have a natural disposition towards that. And here's the thing. When somebody does something that frustrates me, it's natural for me to respond in anger. And it actually feels good when I do respond in anger. And so in that sense, it is natural, but there's a deeper sense of the word natural, which is what the Bible means, which is the way that you were born to live. The way that God made you for your flourishing. And so what God says to me is, dude, that anger is a part of your sinful nature. It's not what's best for you. I want to invite you back into the good life of following me. And so I have a choice in that moment where I'm, whether I'm going to act on that anger or whether I'm going to refrain from that anger because I have a choice for who's Lord of my life in that moment and who I believe knows what's good for me whether it's me and my feelings and my definition of the good, or whether it's God and his feelings and his definition of the good. And the way that I respond to those feelings in my heart, to what feels natural to me, is the way that I demonstrate who I trust and who I love. And that's the, the tension of this chapter. The Romans 1 is saying that, that whatever is good that God designed for us, we actually want to do the opposite of that. That, that your quote-unquote natural desires have become the opposite of what God wants for you to do. So we have to fight to believe that what he says is good. Now I want to say that's not just for this one specific topic. Guess what? What I just described to you, that's the same thing for heterosexual lust. It's the same thing for the type of lust that other people are experiencing. This isn't some like taboo sin that's like different or worse than anything that any of us struggle with, anything that I struggle with. What happens is the sinful desire comes in and it hijacks your life. It hijacks what you think is best. And now you have a decision of who you're going to live your life for and who you're going to follow. And that's true across the board for sin, not just for this one in particular. And so here's the deal. I know that's hard for you. I know there's people in here that likely struggle with this. And I would love the privilege to get to walk through life with you and to confess sin alongside of you and to figure out how to honor Jesus with you. And I would love the privilege to get to talk to you about how much God stinking loves you, how much he loves you and how his perception or how the perception that you have of him might be different from what's actually true of him. So I just want to invite you to stick around, and I want to invite you guys as Salt Company to be caring and compassionate people who listen to people that struggle just like you do. Here's what's hard about these temptations and sin is that we begin to feel helpless 
in being anything more than what our idols say that we are. And we begin to have these like I am statements these, and these I need statements. So I, I need homosexuality. I need control. I need success in order to be okay, in order to live a satisfied life. And what that causes in your heart is false worship. You forget the God who loves you. You forget the life of flourishing that he has for you. And depraved worship leads to depraved living. Depraved worship leads to depraved living. So there's this tension in the Christian life of two things that are true of you, that are true of me, that I'm, I'm a sinner and I'm a beloved child of God. And how do those two kind of come together? Well, we have to see the darkness first, right? So Paul gives us this list to kind of finish out our section, and just, just bear with me here. He gives us this list to kind of finish out our section, and he's going to give a description of humanity. So if you're a part of humanity in this room, hint, hint, that's all of you. This is a description of you. Okay, so, so fill in the blank with me, and I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start with me. This is in verse 29. Jordan was filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. Fill in the blank with your name. You are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. You're a gossiper, a slanderer, a hater of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Told you there were going to be some shots fired. I warned you. Paul levels humanity. And we have these cute ideas about the goodness of humanity that we need to put up against the scripture and ask the question, what are we going to believe? The thing that feels nice or the thing that the God of the universe has said is true. And the reality is, is that, that what Paul is doing is he's showing us that we've got no shot of getting to God on our own. He levels us in front of God so that we, that we would come to him with humility. And I think one of the hardest parts of the whole chapter for me is the, is the part that terrifies me the most is verse 20 where it says that we are without excuse. The wrath of God is going to be revealed from heaven and you will be silent. You will have nothing to say. There's nothing you're going to be able to say, nothing you can do, nothing I can do. And you need to recognize that you have literally nothing that you could give him to turn away his fierce opposition towards the evil in you. So what will we do? What's your game plan now? What will wash away our sins? What will overwhelm your idolatry? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. See, idols promise the same things that Jesus does. They promise love and satisfaction and safety and acceptance and significance, but they can't deliver like he can. Let's take the idolatry of relationships. What, is, what does a relationship offer us? To be known completely and to be loved completely. 
right? You want to find a person who when they see you, like when they really see you for who you are, when you're not faking it, when you're just you, that they won't turn away, that they'll accept you, that they'll look at you and say, I will never leave you. One of my greatest temptations towards idolatry has a name. Her name's Jessamy Adams. She's the love of my life. We've been married for six years. I've loved her a lot longer than that. And she's the pinnacle of human relationships for me. It's about as good as it gets. That's where safety and security is found. You guys can think whatever you want about me, but if she thinks highly of me, like, I'm good. And on our wedding day, we made promises to each other. And those promises essentially amounted to, I'm never going to leave you. You're mine forever. I'm, I'm never going to abandon you. And I know that's a great thing. Hear me on this. I'm not telling you to like never have fun in life and like never enjoy good things. Okay, you should like get married if you want. That's great. You should enjoy your life. Like these things are good, but they get difficult when they become God things. Here's the problem. If Jessamy and I begin to put each other on the thrones of our hearts, one day one of us is going to outlive the other. And if we've captured each other's hearts, on that day, I'm going to be staring into the casket of my dead God. And I'm going to have no one to comfort me. My wife is a great gift, but she's a terrible God. She inevitably will fail me, and I will inevitably fail her, just like everything else in this world that you possibly could worship. What will you do then? You worship the idol of success and you'll, you'll mess up that job and be fired. You worship the idol of relationships. He'll, he'll break your heart. You, you worship the idol of religion and you'll eventually find out that you're no closer to righteousness than you were before. There's both a throne and an altar in your heart. You know what an altar is? It's the place where a sacrifice is made to appease God. And it's and it's between the God of the universe, the God who is, and the false gods of your life. And one's going to go on the throne and the other will be sacrificed on the altar. And what it means to be human is to continually sacrifice your relationship with God on the altar of your heart so that your idols can be on the throne. But here's what Jesus did. He stood up from his throne and he tied himself to an altar. While we chase the love of false gods, Jesus walked up a hill called Calvary. And it was there that he erected an altar to the real God, and then he laid down on it. A simple wooden tree where the source of life and love would hang and die. And as promised, the wrath of God was revealed, but instead of being revealed on you, it was revealed on him. Jesus is the lightning rod to God's wrath that protects you. And he, unlike other gods, he's not going to leave you. He can look at you with a smile in his eyes and say, I will never leave you or forsake you. And he can back up that promise. You fail on an idol, it'll leave you. But you fail on Jesus and he'll smile on you. We spit in his face and he kept walking to the cross because he just loved us regardless of if we loved him back. 
Do you know what it's like to walk into the presence of God and to agree with him about your brokenness? To, to quit playing the game like you have it all together and just to admit that you've abandoned him, just to, to say what's true about you, to say what's true about me. And do you know what it's like to look that God in the eyes expecting to see shame and disappointment and only to find love? Don't doubt the love of God for you. If a God would do that for you, doesn't he want what's best for you? When he asks you for something, isn't he asking you for something that's good? Guys, Jesus is calling you to himself tonight. He's saying that he's better. He's better than what you've been chasing, that he can offer you everything that you've been looking for. And he's saying that all of that idol worship, all the false worship, the false love in your lives, that if you'll just come to him, it'll be irrelevant to your standing before him, that'll remove it as far as the east is from the west, that it won't become, come between you and him anymore, and that nothing can separate you from his love. Nothing will take his kid away from him because you're his child that he's loved since the foundation of the world and he's pursued you from heaven to earth and he wants a relationship with you and he's saying, will you come to me? Will you just worship me and find joy? And when that happens, he gets the final word on who you are. The I am's change. Insert your name here. I am clean. I am whole. I'm loved. I'm free. When you see the beautiful blood of Jesus, you can look at him and then you can look at your idol and you can say, I don't need you anymore. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Let me pray. Jesus, the word you give to us in Romans 1 is weighty. And I, I know there's people in the room that are feeling the weight of their sin. And would they see how beautiful you are? Would you, by your spirit, give them faith to believe the riches of the love that you want to offer to them? They literally cannot imagine something better than you are. Help them to believe that. Help them to come to you. Let us be people that are quick to come back to you when we've gone away. Help us to quit chasing our false loves and to start chasing you and to see everything that you have to offer us. Jesus, thank you that you sacrificed yourself, that you came and you died so that we don't have to. And thank you that you free us from those false loves. God, would would you show us our sin and the weight of it, but also show us the utter lack of condemnation in Christ, the beauty of your grace as it shines against the backdrop of our hearts. Yeah, we love you. Amen.